everyone, and welcome to episode number four of the Anno Domini podcast. Uh, this is a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how the church calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. now reached the beginning of the fourth week of the new church year. Last week, if you remember, was Gaudete Sunday, or the Sunday of Rejoicing. This Lord's Day is the fourth and the final Sunday of Advent this year. Uh, And by this time on Wednesday morning, we will have completed the time of Advent, and we'll be beginning a new time. It'll be the joyful 12 days of Christmas which is also known as Christmas time or Christmas tide, depending on your tradition. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Joe Stout, and I and my wife and our seven children, soon to be eight, we decided to spend a year following the liturgical calendar. And the following podcasts are produced in real time as that, as that goes along. It's kind of as a way of documenting the experiences that we've discovered as a result of our attempt to structure our lives as so many of our Christian brothers and sisters have done in the past and are doing today. Our hope is that we will find that the liturgical calendar can give a framework for what we emphasize and when we emphasize it. We are in the season of Advent, which is a time of longing and of joy, a time when we sing and pray and hope with all the saints Maranatha, or come Lord Jesus. Our minds are bent in this way, knowing that he has already come, but that he will one day come again. And like many of the promises of Scripture, Advent reminds us that God's kingdom on earth has come in an already, but not yet, kind of way. Advent keeps us longing, whether in joy, in pain, or in the groaning that all of creation experiences for the coming and fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the revealing of the sons and daughters of the king and the redemption of the body. This unraveling of the curse began when the Christ child, as the hymn tells us, when the Christ child, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. I think I will continue, at least for now, the structuring of this podcast. And the way we structure it is we structure it into four parts. There's a practical structure, a practical part, a biblical part, a historical, and then a musical. Four parts total. Uh, you know, that kind of structure interests me. And so far, I haven't run out of things to say about each one of them. And, you know, my wife might think I won't ever run out of things to say about anything. And she might be right. But the point is, I care deeply about practical Christianity. I don't want it to just be in my head 
as intellectual knowledge. But I also don't want it to just be in my heart as emotional feelings. I want the knowledge, I want the feelings, but I also want to be able to live it in a way that displays obedience, love, and devotion to the Savior who put on the frailty of human flesh so that I could one day put on the glory of the resurrected body. So examining devotion and obedience to Christ in the real world, a fancy word that we like to call orthopraxy, uh, that's just, you know, how we actually obey God. So examining that devotion, that orthopraxy, it's so critical for Christians to embrace. And I'll tell you why. A long time ago, our culture forsook anything resembling Christian conduct. We were uh, mainly a Christian nation at our founding, and since then we have absolutely forsaken the mother which brought us so much prosperity. There's an old saying that says, uh, faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. So the faithfulness of the Christians of old it brought forth all of this immense prosperity that we're a part of, and now it's the, the daughter, the prosperity is devouring the mother, it's devouring the faithfulness. And so it's critical that Christians are examining their orthopraxy, what they believe in action. What you believe is going to result in action. And so your orthodoxy, what you believe, is going to result in orthopraxy. Your orthopraxy is so critical to, to understand and embrace because our culture long ago forsook anything resembling Christian conduct. And so this is why I start with the practical section of the podcast, and then I follow it up with the biblical. It's, you know, basically, here's what we've done, and here, the biblical, so here's what we've done, that's the practical, here's why it matters, the biblical. And then we move to the historical as a way of saying, hey, you know, we are, we are not alone in this. Others have followed these old paths too. Our feet may be new, but the paths are not. And then we end with an ancient or, you know, not so ancient hymn, but some type of musical theme as a way of tying together and reinforcing through music and through a worshipful manner both the practical and the biblical, and the historic connections that we've made. So let's get started. I spoke briefly last week on the paradox surrounding rest. Briefly summarized, we often have to work very hard to prepare to rest the way God commanded. Rest is not the same as relaxation, and it should be seen, really, rest should be seen as a spiritual act of service, obedience, and it should be done in joy. So with that in mind, I found it interesting, on the practical note, that my wife and I found ourselves talking this week, over our morning coffee, about the story of Mary and Martha, as described in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As you may recall, Martha invited Jesus to come to her house for supper. Mary, her sister, was so enraptured with the teachings of Christ that she simply sat at his feet and didn't even attempt to help her sister prepare for the feast. And Luke tells us in that, in that story, he says, quote, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
Martha, I'm sure, was exasperated because she lived in a day and age without Costco's, electric ovens, or freezer meals. And she was frustrated by her sister's lack of help or concern about what she was going through. And she complained to Jesus about Mary. Now, Jesus' response to Martha is pretty startling. He tells Martha that she is worried about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary chose rightly. Uh, that one thing, of course, is, is Christ. And as Elizabeth and I discussed this, we both agreed that Mary chose rightly. And at the same time, people still needed to eat dinner. In other words, someone had to prepare the meal and serve the guests. I, although I do suppose if Jesus is your dinner guest and you've seen him feed the 5,000, you could take your chances and see what happens. But the point is, is that sitting at the feet of Jesus and serving him dinner, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like preparing a dinner is somehow wrong. Martha could have been hard at work with her preparations and cheerfully acknowledged her sister sitting at the feet of her Lord. She could have even joined her sister at the feet of Jesus, knowing that dinner would, as dinners do, eventually happen and work itself out. What she did instead was complain in the midst of her preparations, and this, I believe, is what Jesus gently admonishes her against. Jesus was telling Martha that she could rest even in her work because he was with her. I think this is really important as we enter the final stretch of Christmas preparations. The work is good, and the one to whom your work is given is even better. So do all things without grumbling or complaining, and you will shine as lights to the world. Each week, we examine a passage from the three-year lectionary. We are on series A this year, and so since, at least during Advent, we've been examining the passages from Isaiah, we'll do that again. This week's four readings are Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, Psalm 24, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, and the gospel reading is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So let's read the word of God as it's recorded by Isaiah, and then let's discuss it. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. All right, that's the, that's the passage. Um, Ahaz was, the, first a little background, Ahaz was the king of Judah during this prophecy. Judah and Israel, as you may recall, were two divided kingdoms, and they were often at war with one another. Um, often, they also were not following the Lord at all. At the beginning of chapter 7, Israel uh, has banded together with Syria and has marched on Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. And they were marching on him in an attempt 
to force Judah into an alliance against yet another kingdom that was uh, that of Assyria. Are you confused yet? We've got Judah, we've got Israel, we've got Syria, and we've got Assyria. Well, when Ahaz hears that Israel has joined forces with Syria and is going to march on Judah, his heart and the heart of all his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's what the, that's literally what it says. It says, quote, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So in other words, he was terrified. In his terror, God tells him, God commands him, ask for a sign, as high or as low as Ahaz wishes. But Ahaz, who does not fear God, Second uh, Chronicles tells us he was a wicked king, uh, he refuses to test God. He kind of seems to want to take the high ground by asking for a sign. He, he kind of feigns like he's taking the high ground. But, you know, you don't do that kind of thing with God. God gives him a sign anyway. And the sign is something pretty interesting. The sign is a baby, a child, born of a virgin, who will be a king, or likely be a king, and will deliver his people from the terror before them. Why do I think he'll be a king? Well, kings are known to choose between evil and good. They're able to divide good and evil. That's kind of the Solomon, that's the, Solom, uh, the, the, the approach that Solomon would always take. And um, the prophecy uh, was really fulfilled in two ways. First, it was fulfilled during the day of Isaiah with the birth of a king or a deliverer. Um, it, we're not really sure. It could have been Hezekiah, the, the son of Ahaz, or it could have been another child of Ahaz. We're not really told. It could have even been a son of Isaiah. But in some way, the two kings that Ahaz dreaded so much would no longer be a dread to him, and it would be in part because of this child. But that's not why we're talking about it today. If that was all it was, it would have stayed in history, and we would it would be an obscure passage of Isaiah that none of us have ever heard of. But we've all heard of this passage, and we all know it well. And the reason was is that it was fulfilled in a perfectly complete way with, through the birth of Christ. The gospel reading from the lectionary this week um, also is, the, uh, is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And in this passage, we read that the birth of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy spoken in Isaiah 7. It actually fulfilled it. Because here was literally God with us. You know, back in, I, uh, back in Isaiah 7, in, that, in their time, there was a partial fulfillment of some kind. But here we literally had God with us. We had and will forever have Emmanuel. It's also important to notice what this child was destined to do. He would save his people from their sins. This, I believe, is what Jesus meant when he promised in John 6, 37, that, quote, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Close quote. So Jesus came to save sinners, and there isn't a sinner given to him by his Father that he won't save. This is the good news that Christmas is all about. As we move into the historical section, I thought it would be helpful to give a broad overview of the entire church calendar, along with a handy printable guide that marks it out from start, not to finish, but from start to repeat. 
It's the thing about the church calendar is that there is no finish uh, until you die. Then it's, of course, that's a, that's a great finish. But um, the, the church calendar never ends. It just continues to repeat. So I've mentioned this before, but I want to, I think it bears repeating. I came from a Protestant, Reformed, and Evangelical background. I have been extremely blessed with faithful, God-fearing parents, God-fearing grandparents, and even God-fearing great-grandparents. However, the church calendar was just simply never a major emphasis within our family traditions. And so therefore, I don't have a lot of experience to fall back on. Uh, And, you know, I don't know what it looks like tradition-wise to follow the cyclical life that the church calendar provides. And, you know, that cyclical nature of the calendar has lent itself to many written outlines in the form of kind of circular pie chart type visual aids that I've really found helpful. Um, And I'm going to attach one to the show notes here uh, for download if you're interested in seeing it for yourself and kind of exploring it a little bit more yourself. It's really interesting all the different layers that have been built into the one I'm going to share with you. Um, If you start from the outside of the circle and just work your way in, there's been a lot of thought put into it, and it's really quite, quite remarkable, actually. Um, But the church calendar, you know, this is the Anno Domini podcast. We're on podcast number four. We ought to really, uh, you know, kind of dig in a little bit to dig into a broad topic. But we really ought to look um, in more detail at that broad topic of what the church calendar is and, and how it is structuring out our life. But so in its broadest terms, the liturgical calendar is how the universal church has reckoned time in spite of how the culture around them did. So the calendar starts with the first Sunday of Advent, and it follows two main halves. So the first half is where we celebrate the acts of Jesus. In other words, this is the time that we celebrate what Jesus did. This would be things like his advent, his birth, his revealing to the world, epiphany, his baptism, transfiguration, his 40 days of fasting, his triumphal entry, last supper, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. This half of the church year is sometimes called the festal half or the festival half. Jesus is with us because we are celebrating his acts and therefore we have a feast. Uh, If the first half of the year celebrates what Jesus did, then the second half of the year celebrates what Jesus taught. This time is also called ordinary time because the weeks are arranged using ordinal numbers, one, two, three, based on how many weeks past Pentecost we find ourselves. Um, The first half of the church year starts with Advent and ends with Pentecost, and the second half of the church year um, starts with Pentecost, Pentecost, and ends with Advent. So the season starts after Pentecost because as the Spirit comes to us, He enables us to learn, to understand, and to be changed by the teachings of Christ in a way that we could never be changed without the Spirit's work. While Jesus was here, he promised that if he left, he would send someone who would enable us to do even greater things than he did. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always struggled with that part of the Bible. How on earth can we do greater things than Jesus? It just doesn't seem right. But Jesus was speaking of sending the Spirit, and once the Spirit had been sent to us and indwelled us, how believing and obeying his words the words of Christ, that was a greater thing than even raising the dead. So to be reborn by the Spirit was a, was a thing of greater magnitude 
than even raising the dead. So that is what Jesus was referring to when he said that we could do even greater things once the Spirit came. At least I, I believe that. So the first half of the year is divided into four sections. The first is the Advent, or coming of Christ, and that would include all 12 days of Christmas, uh, this, the time we're in now. The second season of the first half of the year is Epiphany, which means manifestation or Christ showing himself. So, so you know, he's revealed to the wise men. He's revealed at his baptism. He's revealed to Simeon. He is revealed during his transfiguration. That's the time of Epiphany. That's kind of the second part of the, the first half of the, of the new year. Uh, then uh, we enter the season of Lent with the start of Ash Wednesday. That's the third season. Lent means spring. Uh, it also could mean to lengthen, which is referring to the lengthening light of spring. This is the time we prepare ourselves for the great events that will take place during Holy Week, which begins uh, roughly six weeks after the beginning of Lent. An author I really like by the name of Jeff Myers, he puts it like this, quote, During Lent, we are encouraged to examine ourselves anew in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We follow his example and seek for 40 days to wage a more earnest struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our desire in this is increased sanctification and growth in Christian maturity and obedience. Close quote. So the period of Lent leads into Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and finally Easter. Easter itself, where death was conquered by our Lord. And then after Easter, there is what is often called the 40 days of joy which are the weeks following Easter, but preceding the ascension of Christ into heaven. So the first half of the church year culminates with arguably the most important event in all of human history. Not the, not the advent of Christ, not even the death and resurrection of Christ, but that of Pentecost. Because you see, Pentecost marked an enormous shift in human history. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the chosen of the Lord and to provide a way in which we could be, as Jesus promised, born again. Only when Pentecost has come and we have been filled with the Spirit can we now carry out the teachings of Christ in obedience and love. The acts of Christ come first because the acts of Christ give all the merit to the teachings of Christ if Jesus didn't do all the things that the Bible says about him, then the teachings of Christ don't mean anything. So we start with the acts of Christ, and then it leads into the time after Pentecost, which is where we um, observe and think about and focus on the teachings of Christ. The first half is the acts of Christ. The second half is the teachings of Christ. One last thing is that you'll see different things like Lent. Lent is often uh, seen as a time of penitence. It's a time when we, uh, as, as Jeff Meyer says, we kind of struggle with the things that the flesh, the world, and the devil are fighting against us with. And so sometimes we fast from certain things and we abstain from other things. One thing you'll never see in Lent is any of that happening on the Lord's Day, because there's no morning or fasting aloud on the Lord's Day on Sundays. The Lord's Day is when God expects us to show up and celebrate. This week, we're going to be looking at um, a hymn 
that jumps back to the 4th century. Last week we looked at a hymn that was from the 16th century. This week we're going to go back to the 4th century to a song originally written in Latin by Coelius Sedulius. I'm sure I butchered that name. But it was translated in 1826 by John Ellerton, and, uh, who gave it the name, or translated the name, From East to West. From East to West, that's the name of the hymn. So let's take a look at the words. Verse 1 says, From east to west, from shore to shore, let every heart awake and sing. The holy child whom Mary bore, the Christ, the everlasting King. Behold, the world's creator wears the form and fashion of a slave. Our very flesh our maker shares, his fallen creature, man, to save. For this how wondrously he wrought, a maiden in her lowly place, became in ways beyond all thought the chosen vessel of his grace. And while the angels in the sky sang praise above the silent field, to shepherds poor, the Lord Most High, the one great shepherd, was revealed. All glory for this blessed morn, to God the Father ever be. All praise to thee, O virgin born. All praise, O Holy Ghost, to thee. The song begins by urging all beating hearts in the world, no matter where, to awake and sing of the Holy Child, born of Mary, the Christ, the King of Kings. Verse 2 moves into a devastating description of Christ putting on the form and fashion of a slave. Although Jesus was never a slave in the way we are, he, he never had sin, he never had original sin, he did not put on our sinfulness. He did, though, put on our frail humanity and our weakness so that he could save his people from their sins. Verse 3 puts the focus on the amazing story of Mary and how God, in dwelling a poor but virtuous peasant girl, caused her to become the vessel for carrying grace itself in a way, in, in a way that's beyond our ability to reason. And then verse 4 tells the story of the poor, humble shepherds and how they were, they were the first to hear of the good tidings of great joy about the one great shepherd who was now revealed and that they could see with their own eyes. Amazing typology there. You know, these human shepherds, and they're, uh, they're the first ones the great shepherd was revealed to. Finally, verse 5 culminates in a doxology of praise to the triune God and a praise for the actual, real, physical morning on which Christ came into the world. This was a real event in real history, and history has never been the same again. It was now Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. So I'm planning on having a Christmas Eve podcast and a Christmas Day podcast. They'll both be very short, but I have a couple other songs uh, from the album Advent I'd like to share via the podcast format. Uh, if you'd rather not wait to hear those songs on the podcast, you can check out the new album, which is on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. I'll have a link in the show notes, but simply searching any of those sites should bring it up. The title of the album is Advent, and the artist is Joe Stout. So that's enough for this week, everyone. Happy fourth Sunday of Advent, and I will see you all in 
two days for a short podcast on Christmas Eve night and another one on Christmas morning. Until then, enjoy this new version of the hymn from East to West, and we'll see you next time. From east to west, from shore to shore, let every heart awake and sing. The holy child who Mary bore, the Christ, the everlasting King. Behold. Father ever be.